The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. hosting for Leslie Marshall, having a great time. We've talked to some fantastic guests, and we wouldn't want to end it after that by not bringing you any more good guests. So I thought, why not a few good, more good ones? we got Lee Rogers on the line. I should say Dr. Lee Rogers, board-certified podiatrist, chosen as one of the most influential podiatrists in the country. Why are we talking to, to a guy who's just an amazing podiatrist? A few reasons. Well, he also ran for Congress twice in California's 25th District, endorsed by the Los Angeles Times and the DNC, as I remember, um, knows the game of politics well, but as a podiatrist can also talk to us a little bit about those bone spurs in Mr. Donald Trump's foot and whether that should have kept him out of Vietnam. So, Dr. Lee, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, Cliff. Glad to be on. All right. So uh, talk to us. Bring us your expert opinion because I'm not sure I can even get to – how talented and and how you're an amputation specialist. You're like, I don't know if you remember that scene in, uh, what was that movie where Alec Baldwin was the bad doctor and he sits there and he lists all of his board certifications and how awesome he is. Do you know what I'm talking about? Thank you. That's like you, except for you don't kill people as far as I know. Right. Um, right. It's you know, uh, I'm being, it's a good intro, I hope. Um, so, so talk to us about, uh, about the bone spurs. What, what do we, what do we got going on there? Is Mr. Trump being honest for once or, uh, is he doing his usual thing? Yeah, I don't know that, that, uh, he's been honest at, at much uh, so far. If you, if you see the, uh, the, the fact checking that's been done with a lot of, a lot of the things that he claims is fact, but, um, we are able to double check some of these things because there are records of them that exist. And, and he, he, um, so he was he did receive a, a, a one wide deferment medical deferment actually disqualifying him from service uh, for the draft from the Vietnam War in 1968 uh, and he um, uh, that was that was immediately post his uh, his days at Wharton School where he uh, had an education deferment so he spent four years there uh, studying real estate and business and yep. and then immediately finishing that he got his deferment for a medical reason and if you uh um if you read the new york times where he was quoted just a couple of days ago as saying i had a doctor that gave me a letter a very strong letter about my deal <laughs> the best and, letter uh, ever sorry yeah right exactly best doctor ever best best heel spurs ever um right so it, it has caused people to ask a lot of questions about heel spurs and whether or not the, this is a condition that would disqualify somebody from service or if this is a, you know, a way to, to get a doctor to write a letter so that you wouldn't have to serve in a war. And um, 
You know, the first is as being a, a board-certified podiatrist and treating patients with, with uh, these types of conditions. I don't want to belittle the fact that, that people can have horrible, debilitating foot pain that, that keeps them from doing things, and, and that's, a, uh, that's a bad condition. But what I can say about heel spurs is that um, many, many people, in fact, probably millions of people, have heel spurs that are completely asymptomatic. You don't have any symptoms from it whatsoever. They're not causing any pain. Uh, they're sometimes associated with another condition called plantar fasciitis, which is that typical heel pain that you hear about people having. Right. Uh, and But they don't always have to be. Uh, but the spurs in and of themselves are not a, a, a reason to not engage in sports or other types of activity. Um, so it does, it does make me question the fact that if you were disqualified from service for a medical reason, uh, in this case heel spurs, if it was so severe that you were disqualified, you should, you should have sought treatment for that, and there should be records of that treatment that, uh, that he sought. Um, you know, did and we you, have no records of any of this. He didn't produce any records. I don't know if there are any that exist. His, his doctor, you might remember this, Cliff, but his doctor, whose name is, is uh, Harold Bornstein from um, New York, uh, <laughs> he's been his doctor for, I think he said, 39 or 40 years. His doctor wrote a letter. Do you remember this uh, late last year? Yeah, he said, like, um, he may be the healthiest person ever to run for president, exactly. something like what? that. Right, right. <laughs> That's, I mean, so he's healthier than most of the people to run for president because most of them are actually dead at this point. So I'll give him that. True. Right, yeah. He's, he's uh, the healthiest one above ground. Um, he's probably healthier than Andrew Jackson right now. But I digress. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, yeah, so I, I, I remember this, and I, I looked up the letter because, it, it one, it read to me as a letter that was – very self-serving that somebody would almost write about themselves if you if you were if you if you needed a job recommendation in a letter of reference uh, and and you call your friend and you say hey can you write this can can I write a letter of recommendation for myself and you can just sign it you know and that's kind of what it read like because it didn't read like a letter that a doctor would have written that's the first thing I, I recall but in that letter it said that uh, Donald Trump has had no significant medical problems over the four decades that he's been his doctor, and that if elected, he would be the unequivocally the healthiest individual ever elected to the presidency. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm not a doctor, you know, as you are, obviously, but that to me seemed ridiculous that any doctor would actually write a letter like that. That felt like Trump wrote it himself and then, you know, held the doctor hostage and made him sign it. Yeah, right. I. I I agree. I don't think I've never read a letter like that from from any doctor uh, in in uh, you know about a patient's medical condition, and um, the so that that begs the question though that if he has had no significant medical problems, then you know obviously something was so significant that it kept him from serving or being drafted or or getting a lower draft number in, for war. And if there was something that was that serious, you'd think that that, that kind of thing, there would be a record of it and it'd be mentioned. You would, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of even more rich coming from the guy who uh, wants, wants, wanted President Obama to produce birth certificates and college transcripts. Not only will he not produce his taxes, where are they, Donald? Uh, but he won't produce uh, uh, medical records and all sorts of other uh, things that you might think would be relevant for someone running for office. I mean, if it was so exactly. bad, he had to stay out of Vietnam, you know. And let me be clear, 
Um, I'm not advocating that anyone should have gone to Vietnam. I think it was a terrible and tragic mistake. So don't take me the wrong way. My big problem here is, is with hypocrisy, with somebody who is, is attacking Gold Star families and talking about people that were prisoners of war if they were caught as being weak and all the other things and, and how he sacrificed just like them. Well, when you say stuff like that, there are a lot of terrific people who, 55,000 of them, I believe, who went and lost their lives in Vietnam. Uh, and so if he's going to attack families like that and do those kinds of things, maybe he should explain to us why Mr. Tough Guy himself wasn't there. So that's my line of thinking anyhow. I feel the same way. All the same to me, not all the same. Much better would have been not getting involved in that war. Um, well, that's interesting, and I, I feel like you'd have some things to say about that. I'd like to also know, because you, you in one of your the three or four careers I know you in, Lee, um, you also ran for, for Congress. I remember being uh, slightly involved. We weren't able to pull it off, but you came darn close and were a terrific candidate. Um, what do you think from somebody who had a terrific operation together? You know, you had some great staff members, and you were on the ball, and you had to be because you were in a district that was slowly, you know, heading in the Democratic direction but still leaned Republican, right, the sort of exurbs of L.A. You correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, that's the way I think of Simi Valley and some of that. Um, you know, when you see Trump and you see he's got no people in the field and his fundraising operation, it's, I mean, I guess he just raised more money, but a lot of it seems like it's coming from the RNC and whatever, that he has got no real campaign going on. Are you offended as somebody who ran an actual real campaign? Yeah, I, I agree with you, uh, Cliff. I think that there is when you ha when you're doing a campaign, whether you're doing it on a on a, a local level for in a congressional district or for a state for for a U.S. Senate or for president, you you have to have a a very solid ground game. And so you, you the first part of your campaign is your your fundraising side, and that shows how vi your vitality of your campaign and how many people are are supporting you and where your support is coming from. In Trump's case, you know, he's been he hasn't really done any fundraising. He claims that he can self-fund his whole campaign. Um, he hasn't to this point. Uh, he, instead of been taking money from donors and then reimbursing himself for flights and, and other things like that. Um, but the second part of your campaign is is the field work. And that's done, right. you know, right before the election. And he's you know, you, you have to they, – they, people credit President Obama with his, his field his, – his excellent field campaign that he had both in, in 2008 and in 2012. And, uh, and, and it was a very, um, a very modern electronic field program that was right, being the run. Data. And, yep. and I, I, I don't see, you know, on the ground pretty much anything going on from a Trump presidential campaign, there are there are Republican local Republican offices that are um, you know supporting Trump as they are anybody else that's running. But there, there it's are, kind of all fluff, isn't it? Like everything else the guy does, where he just right. sort of there's a lot there's a sort of yeah. All right, we got to go to a break. We'll we'll pick up on this as soon as we get back. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. All right, you're back with Cliff Schechter sitting in for Leslie Marshall. 
We are talking to the great Dr. Lee Rogers, talking to him about some, some podiatry and uh, bone spurs in Mr. Trump's foot. But now we, we're talking a little bit about politics, too. Um, so when we left off, we're talking a little bit about your campaign, Lee, and how you looked at Trump's campaign and it was lacking. Um, I got another question for you, which I've been meaning to ask forever, and uh, I'm hoping you can help me here, which is why are all the Republican doctors in Congress crazy? Do you know the answer to that yeah, one? A- like li- literally the cra- – I mean, not just crazy. Brad Winstrup, by the way, podiatrist, who's my congressman where I am in Cincinnati, Phil Gingry, who, who all came up with, uh, with Todd Aiken, agreed with him about the uh, – that whole theory of, of uh, rape, shutting that whole thing down. Paul Brown, who's no longer there, thankfully, ran for the Senate, who I think said evolution came from the, the pit of hell. Scott Desjardins, the anti-choice uh, physician who was cheating on his wife and then taking his mistress uh, to have abortions performed, even though he supposedly hated it. And Tom Coburn from Oklahoma, who you know said there was a rampant breakout of lesbians in the bathrooms uh, that we're going to endanger the entire population of Oklahoma. Um, where do these people come from? <laughs> do you have any insight into why, if you're a doctor and decide to be a Republican, immediately you must become a complete fringe, fringe lunatic? The, the, you know, there's only um, the last number that I had seen when I was running, there were 22 doctors in Congress. And, uh, and only three of them were Democrats. So you had Jim McDermott, who retired this year from Seattle. Um, you had mm-hmm. Ami Barra and Raul Ruiz, both from California. Uh, right. And, uh, and then there is a, a non-voting member from the Virgin Islands. I forget what her name is, and she's, she's uh, also a Democrat. But um, the rest of them are Republicans, and they, and, and they, they are – in general, a little wackier than the average Republican, and it and it really does boggle my mind. And I and I'll say I know a lot of those people. I know Brad Wenstrup very well as a as a podiatrist, and he and I definitely don't see eye to eye on on any of the political issues. But um, he does. He is a uh, he has been a big advocate for our profession, which he gets a lot of support from the profession because of that. Okay, that's good. Um, we'll give him some credit there. So, right. It's but it's. You know, and uh, and and he, it is funny because he did send me a letter once. I gave him money for his campaign because of that, and he sent me a letter that uh, um, that was the standard. You know, when you give when you give money to a campaign, you get the standard letter that's signed at the bottom by the candidate. If you give over a certain amount, uh, then they maybe write you a handwritten letter. So he had sent me the form letter, and and um, the first paragraph was, "Thank you for donating to my campaign, so I can fight everything that Obama is doing, and and all of this." And he had he had crossed through it. And, and said probably not what you're looking for, uh, which was, which I thought was pretty pretty uh, cute that he was actually looking at, that, at the, who was getting the letter. But um, <laughs> but I think in in general when you see the um, the Republican doctors in Congress, they form their own caucus that they call the, the doctors caucus, and it's only the Republicans that are in this caucus. And so you think that when something comes out from the doctors caucus that it, it's kind of a bipartisan thing, but it's not, and it's it's really some crazy stuff. I mean, you think went to med school like scientists and, you know, you'd think that they'd be more less likely to be ideological, wouldn't you? Even if they're conservative on economics and things. Right. You you would think so, um, because doctors are supposed to have empathy. Right. So that you'd think that they would be empathetic with uh, the plight of people who need your help. That doesn't really happen in Congress. I think there's a few reasons why 
just in general, when we see the makeup of Congress. One is that you, you can't be a normal person and run for Congress. You, you can't um, have a job <laughs> at, at, at a, a normal place and then you have oh, to take gotcha. two years okay. off of your life to run for office, right? And you have to have money to be able to support yourself while you're taking off two years of your life. And right. you have to have access to other people with money so that they can give you money for your campaign. So that already pre-selects the type of people that are going to be able to make it and go to Washington. So you're pre-selecting people that are wealthy that really don't know what the average American goes through. And, uh, and, that's, and that's on both sides. And that's um, so... Well, yeah, there's no doubt that that limits who runs, yeah, on both sides. But it, um, So it may bring you more wealthier doctors. It's interesting, though, that, they, that, that they're not just wealthier in terms of how they view economic issues. They tend to they, – the thing that always shocked me is, you know, the, the, the pits of hell remark and some of these things, anti-evolution. And, I mean, I forgot the best – well, not – I think pits of hell has to be in the top two maybe. But I forgot even – I just remembered Michael Burgess – He's the one who said that he opposed abortion because you could tell if you watched male fetuses, yeah. they masturbated in utero. You could see right. them pleasuring themselves. I mean, insanity. He's an, he's an OB-GYN, which is actually, uh, you know, or he delivered babies. I think he's an FP and delivered babies. Well, um, that should be illegal, I think, after he said that. It, it, but go it, ahead. <laughs> it, it, it is insane. It's insane to think um, that people like this are actually doctors and that they're, um, they're, they're putting this information out there. Um, and it's uh, and then they're elected members of Congress who are just towing the party line, uh, but sometimes even more extremely than than the other members of Congress. So it's uh, it, it it really is. It's sad to see it. And and the one thing I can tell you too, though, is that while I consider myself a scientist, I've done human research. I've written over a hundred papers. I, I lecture at scientific meetings around the world. Uh, most physicians are not really scientists. You know, the, a doctorate degree, a medical doctor is um, is a professional degree. It's not actually a doctorate in the form of like a PhD. And, okay. and so it's classified as a professional degree. And um, so while they should rely upon science to to make your make your, help improve your judgments when you're treating patients, um, the, science doesn't always answer everything when you're treating patients because we don't have all the answers yet. And it, yep. that's why medicine is still an art. And so you do get people that go into medicine that are not necessarily scientists at heart. All right. We're hitting the break, Lee. Um, but I wanted to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insight on all of these subjects. That's Lee Rogers, businessman, doctor, congressional candidate, movie producer, and all-around brilliant and great guy. Thank you. Cliff Schechter, back with you, filling in for Leslie Marshall. Had a hell of a day, two and a half hours. I'm hanging in. We've got one more fantastic guest that I'd like to introduce you all to. We did a lot of talk about Donald Trump. We did, however, start off this, uh, this block of time with uh, some policy, and I'd like to get a little bit back in that direction. We're lucky enough to have with us Renee Hopkins, who is the executive director of the Washington Alliance for Gun Responsibility. How are you, Renee? Are you with us? Hi, Cliff. I am. I'm great. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank and you for having me on. Sure. Let's go beyond that. Thanks for all you're doing. Um, I'm not sure everybody knows, you know, people, I think, certainly have seen 
with some of the tragedies um, really since I think Newtown, a lot of people have been paying attention, more so even you – know, there's almost too many of them to mention, aren't there? Oregon and, and much more recently Orlando. But – there, you know, we haven't gotten nearly enough done in Washington, mostly executive order, completely, pretty much. But there's a lot going on around the country, great stories people need to know. And you guys are at the cutting edge of it. So I thought having you on to talk about what you've done um, would be fantastic. Let me give first the intro, which is in 2014, your organization put a ballot measure on in Washington State uh, to enact universal background checks. And if I am correct, it was even a, a – uh, I don't know if more stringent is the right word, but it was a tougher kind of background check regime than even the one they were looking at in Washington. Passed with overwhelming, with flying colors, I believe 60% of the vote. This was in 14, not a presidential year. Also, the NRA and friends tried to put on a fake measure to trick people um, and, and get some people to vote for the wrong thing. So with all that said and done, you guys passed this, and now Nevada and Maine are, are following suit and have these background check measures on uh, their ballots this year, but now you guys are taking it a step further to where I think the, much of the future of, of this fight is, where you're, you're going past background checks to even the more sane policy of saying there are certain people who have proven by their behavior through violence and the rest, that they've proven that they need to have guns temporarily taken away from them. The people who know them, or maybe perhaps therapists or others, know that they're a danger and that this could temporarily happen. And this is so. I may have some of this wrong. I know this is on the ballot generally this year, and I'd like you to kind of to tell people a little bit more about it. Absolutely. Well, let me um, start by just giving a little more background about our success in 2014. Um, we actually started working in Washington State trying to get universal background checks passed through the legislative process, um, which, as most of our listeners probably know, is extremely challenging. Um, you've at definitely at the federal level, but even at many state level. Um, mm -hmm. So we were unsuccessful in the legislative process, but knew that we had the option of taking it to the people in Washington State in 2014. And we also knew that in Washington State, like around the country, the vast majority of people are supportive of common sense gun laws, including universal background checks. So after the success of passing 594, universal background checks in Washington State, um, we actually have some great um, information to share with our listeners that we've had more than 12,000 background checks happen that would not have happened previous to the implementation of this law. Fantastic. And we know of at least 50 felons who were denied access um, to firearms through legal purchase. And that actually is really saying something when you think about um, people who are who should not be actually accessing firearms and uh, having a law on the books where we know that we have actually been able to keep people from getting them. Well, I, th That's I think it's also important, Renee, and I, I don't mean to interrupt. I want you to jump back in, but to say quickly that the other side tries to make this, you know, if you can't stop everything, then don't stop anything, which is one of their big goofy arguments uh, that they try to throw out there, which is, oh, this won't help, when really we're talking about a public health crisis here. And with public health, like with smoking and drunk driving, you measure this in, in better outcomes, right? If you save a certain number of lives, if you stop a certain number of accidents. And so what you're saying here is 50 people who are dangerous felons who could have gone and bought guns before, you're, what you guys did stopped that from happening, and we don't know how many lives that could have cost us. And so thankfully... I mean, that, to me, that's a huge difference. Absolutely. And I'll let you Absolutely. continue, but I thought that was important to point out. 
No, thank you, Cliff. That's absolutely right. Um, and we definitely at the Alliance in Washington um, are very focused on a public health approach. We know that um, like with automobile and car fatalities, um, we know that this is not this issue of gun violence is not going to be solved by one law or one public um, health education campaign. Um, it's, it's going to be a number of small things that happen over the years that will um, incrementally reduce gun fatalities. And we did see that with automobiles. I mean, in the early 60s, um, the fatalities due to um, car accidents were 26 mm -hmm. per 100,000 people in our country. And in 2014, through, again, dozens and dozens and dozens of different approaches, um, car fatalities have been reduced to 10.25 per wow. 100,000 people. So that is dramatic, and that is the same approach that we are taking um, with gun violence prevention in Washington State. And I, I think that the really important thing about that is to point out, um, which a lot of the folks from the gun lobby like to argue, um, to point out that there are more cars on the streets today than there were in the 60s. There Great are more point. people driving today than there were in the 60s. Um, so this is not about actually taking away people's rights. It's about making sure that our communities are safer with really, really responsible gun laws and policies. So I will get back to where we are today. After passing <laughs> um, Initiative 594 in 2014, um, we immediately started looking for what our next step would be. And through that process, you know, as you can imagine, we have had um, the unfortunate but, but also very fortunate um, ability to work with so many survivors in our, in our state. And unfortunate mm -hmm. because they exist, but fortunate because they are so willing to share their stories, share their time, and share their experience. And what we've heard time and time again is that family members know. They know when their loved ones are in crisis. They know when their loved ones are likely to harm themselves or others. Um, they also know often if, there are, if there's easy access to firearms in these situations. And what we've right. heard from family members um, is that they, they tried every, so many of them have tried everything, and they had no way to restrict their loved ones' access, easy access to firearms um, for a temporary period of time, which would have allowed their loved ones to get to a place where they were no longer in danger of harming themselves or others. So we really took what we learned from the most important voices in this movement, and that is the survivors, and looked at um, what California had done following the Santa Barbara shooting right, um, in Isla right. Vista. And they, right after that horrible tragedy, through their legislative process, passed a law that's very similar to what we call in Washington State extreme risk protection orders. And we again attempted to get extreme risk protection orders through our legislative process and were unsuccessful. But we also. Now, did you guys, can I ask you? I'm yes. sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Did you guys come close? I remember, so I seem to remember with the background checks, you came pretty close. It may have been one or two conservative, more rural Democrats, or tell me if I'm wrong, who held out or something like that. Like, I felt like you guys came close with that. Uh, and tell me if my premise is wrong. 
did, no, did I, this... no, I think it's, we got close to getting it, um, we got close to getting it out of the house. Um, okay. Where, um, so that, that is true, and, and you're also correct that there were some Democratic holdouts, Democrat holdouts. Um, similarly, with extremist protection orders, um, we had some real challenges with our um, Democratic leadership in Washington state, um, and we're unable to even get it to a vote. Um, Ugh, okay. So we did make the decision to go back to the ballot. Um, I want to be really clear about something, though. We are we are not solely an organization that looks at a, a ballot initiative process as the as the only way that we're going to accomplish things. No, you look to the legislature first, and when they won't do their jobs, you end up going to the ballot straight to the people, right? No, we absolutely do. And in addition, we are using the ballot as a way to demonstrate to our our elected officials um, that the people that are voting them into office want these laws on the books. They want common sense gun laws and they want a safe community and that they are going to be held responsible over yep. time if they do not start doing this through the legislative process, um, basically doing their jobs, which is representing the people that they were elected by. Right, Renee, let's, yes. let's pick this up. We've got a quick break coming up, but then let's pick this up right after. Great. Thank you. This is great. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Schechter, I have the privilege of filling in for Leslie Marshall today. We've gone through two and a half hours of some great guests and good fun. We're here right now with Renee Hopkins, who's the executive director of the Washington Alliance for Gun Responsibility, and she is telling us about some of the great cutting-edge work they're doing in Washington that for all the rest of us are smart enough to follow may just make this country a lot safer. So thank you for being here, Renee. Let's, let's try to pick up where we left off. Sure, Absolutely. So I was just um, beginning to explain the extremist protection order policy that we will have on the ballot this year. Um, across the country, with the 30,000-plus gun violence um, fatalities that, are, that we experience every year, almost two-thirds of those are from suicide. In Washington State, that's even a higher percentage. We are nearly 80% of our gun violence um, fatalities are a result of suicide. And extremist protection orders really provide a tool for family members and law enforcement um, to help prevent gun deaths and gun fatality tragedies, including suicide, also including family violence. And in those rare situations where there are mass shootings, um, this is a law that if, if people choose to use, could be used in a way to prevent those horrific tragedies as well. Extremist protection orders allow family members and law enforcement to petition a judge, present evidence as to why the, the person in question um, should not have access to guns for a temporary period, and that's a really important piece to point out here, 
a temporary period of time. Um, and in Washington state, the law that we're trying to pass would be a one year period of time. And that at the end of that year period, um, as long as a petition has not been refiled, the person's rights would be reinstated. And the other interesting and really important piece of this law that's important is that it's not just talking about um, people accessing uh, newly purchased weapons, but they would also right. have to surrender um, guns that are in their possession already. Um, How would that... Um, extremely important. Yeah, I, I agree. How would that be done? Because I know there have been some talk in the past where some people say, well, you have to, you know, surrender your gun, and then it doesn't happen for too long. Is there a procedure by which they have to do it quickly or at least, um, you know, that there's a procedure so that they're being watched while they're doing it? Or how, how does that work? Yeah, and um, under this law, it would happen within a matter of days. Um, okay, and that's, that's good. We, we are fortunate in Washington State to have um, some – similar law on the book that um, is in regards to very specific domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking um, situations. And so mm -hmm. we have been working very diligently since that law has been put on the books um, to make sure that the implementation of the domestic violence protection order law will fold right into the implementation of extremist protection order. So that implementation work is also a very big piece of what we do here at the Alliance in Washington State, making sure that the laws that we support um, and that we really push to get through are implemented um, in the way that they were intended to be. Well, that's great. Uh, and this is this is obviously incredibly important. You know, the thing that I've seen, and, and there have been a number of articles, and, and uh, I've seen some TV news segments, uh, in-depth segments on this, but if you, it, it seems the one thing you know, that, that is a common factor among so many of these shootings that end up making the press because they're horrific, even whether it's a mass shooting of somebody's own, somebody's family or it's something like what happened in Orlando, you brought up Isla Vista before is another one just like this. Um, you find somebody who has issues uh, where they've either committed domestic violence or they've got anger towards uh, either the opposite sex, the same sex, if that is who they wish to date. Uh, it seems like that that comes up a lot. I mean, I even think of that the, the terrible tragedy in France where the person drove that, that truck through the crowd. It just seems like those who will go and commit violent acts so often have violence in their history. The Navy Yard's another one that comes to mind, that attack. So it seems to me that if, you know, I know that in some other countries, as part of their background checks, that, you know, they, you have to give them a, a number of references for you to even pass an initial background check. Because who's going to most be, be most likely to know? Friends and family and those around you. So this seems to me to be a smart way um, not not an overly intrusive, not a ridiculous, but a very smart way to try to get at this problem, you know, and hopefully we can start, you know, doing more to look at the science of recidivism, uh, that, that you have so many people that really have shown that, that there's a good likelihood they're going to commit this kind of an act and that we can get the guns away from them before they do. No, absolutely. And, you know, what we do know from the little research that's been able to have been done in the past uh, couple of decades due to the federal restriction on funding of gun violence research right. um, is that uh, people who have demonstrated violence in the past are the most likely to demonstrate to actually have violent acts in the future. And that's that, you know, that's not rocket science. Um, it seems fairly common sense, but to actually know that through research is very important. 
The other thing that we know, especially around domestic violence, is that uh, a, a woman is five times more likely um, to be killed by her abuser if that abuser owns a firearm. So right. the lethality issue is really important, both in domestic violence and in, in suicide. We also know um, with suicide that 95% of suicides attempted by firearm are completed. And that is a much higher rate than any other means. And so removing the most lethal um, tool by which someone might attempt suicide will truly save lives. Um, yeah. And we know there, you know, there are similar laws on the books in California, which is a fairly new law, so we don't have a lot of information from that, um, from that state yet. But Connecticut has had a similar law. It's a little bit more restrictive than ours on the books for the past 17 years, and there will be a, a, a great report coming out in the next about 60 days. Um, and we do know that they show very, very promising si um, signs and evidence of reducing, of reducing suicide, which is fantastic. And that's great because I, I, I don't think that we talk enough about the suicide epidemic with guns. And as you pointed out, it's a large percentage of the people that are dying by gunfire. And the, the enormous disparity, which you also brought up, that, that, you know, almost every time someone tries to kill themselves with a gun, they're successful. It's actually the, the exact opposite with most other methods, you know, with, yeah. whether someone tries to slit their wrists or somebody tries to, to do something like that. You know, something like on the order of 80 to 90 percent of the time the people live. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is it's, you know, it's, it's uh, adding kerosene to a fire. I mean, it, it, you're, you know, and, and we've just seen these reports in many rural areas. Um, about about the the, the you know uh, people's lives you know people losing years uh, in their lives I mean the average lifespan is actually you know receding for the first time among you know and because you've got a lot of job loss and alcoholism and, and other uh, societal ills and it seems like mixing guns into that or not at least getting them out of that when you know there's danger again uh, you're just you're, you're you're pouring kerosene in a fire so no, absolutely. And, and the other thing, really important thing to point out in the, in the suicide arena is that, you know, our opposition, their famous argument is that, well, if they don't have access to a gun, they'll just keep trying with another means until they're successful. And we know that that's not true. And in fact, people who attempt suicide, 90% of them never go on to die from suicide in the future. So you attempt from a less lethal means, you survive, and you only have a 10% chance of ever dying from suicide in the future. So that's really, really important. Um, this isn't just saving lives in the moment. It is saving lives. And I think no, that, that – Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. That's fine. Um, so I just think that's a really important thing to make sure that people understand that that, that argument that is, we so often hear from the gun lobby is simply not true. Well, that is all incredibly important, and it. Does, I mean, I've seen the statistics. I can say from personal experience, I have a friend who who is with us and doing terrifically because, you know, he, he did not have a gun and tried something else and survived. So I know what you're talking about. It's incredibly important work you guys have done. You've been successful. You'll be successful. I think that music t is telling me that my time on this show is up. Uh, but thank you so much, Renee, for joining me. Thank you to all of my guests who joined me today. And uh, we'll see if uh, Leslie uh, is gutsy enough to give me the mic another time. If I can keep the, you know, the ratings didn't crash this time. Thanks so much, everyone.